If you're new or visiting, my name is Jerry. I'm one of the pastors here, and I would love to meet with you before you leave today, so feel free to come and find me. I'd love to get to know you a little bit. Um, I don't know about all the rest of you, but this is true in my house right now. Now that the days are shorter and the temperatures are colder uh, in the evening, we feel like we're driven indoors and we're going a little stir crazy already. I mean, we're barely into this season and we're like, how are we going to survive? What are we going to do? And every night about 7.30, we have the same dilemma. Like, what are we going to do now? What do, what, do we, what do we do? How do we not kill each other? And in our better moments, when we're not staring at a screen, we can, we can play games. So we've got ping pong. Uh, me and my boys have been playing a lot of euchre lately, which is fun. But every once in a while, we'll have like family game night. And I brought some of our family favorites here. How many of you like the game of life? Okay, my wife and my daughter really like this one. Um, we've got Monopoly. How many Monopoly, you mean Monopoly people? Star Wars Monopoly. Right? Yep. I, we got Star Wars people in our house. This one's pretty fun, actually. Here's one of my personal favorites, the Settlers of Catan. All right? This is like my favorite. If it's first snowed in, let's do this because this is going to take a little while. And then here's one that I'm curious to know how many of you have heard of this one, Machi Koro. Okay. Oh, somebody over here. All right. We got... <laughs> First hour, everybody was like, what, is, what did you just say? Machi Koro. Somebody gave this to us a few years ago, and I'm not going to explain to you how to play. I don't, I don't really need to because it's like all the rest of these games. And so if I were to say, how do you think you play? Well, here's what you do. You collect resources. You save resources. And at the end of the game, whoever has the most resources, specifically money, they're the big winner, right? I mean, you guys know how this works. Now, that's true for these games, but have you noticed that when it comes to life, we kind of play the game of life the same way, life in the real world the same way. There's a simple rule that we're taught very early on in our lives. And the rule is make as much as you can so you can have everything that you want so you can feel successful. And as an added bonus, you will appear to be successful to those around you. And that's really how you win at life. As long as everybody thinks you're successful, that's all that matters. However, I've noticed that there's a major flaw in the way we play these games and in the way that we approach life. Because these games and in life, we're taught, hey, you are the master of your own destiny. And your goal is to build your empire as big as you can, right? But that's not what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches there's a God in heaven who has given us all the resources that we have and we are to honor him with what we have. And so we give to him as an act of worship. We give to, in gratitude towards him. We, we give to support our local church. We give to help serve those around us. Now, today we're in week three of a, of a series that we're calling Less is More. And in this series, we're looking at what God has to say in his word, what he's revealed to us about the topic of money and resources and generosity. And, and I know, I've said this every week, I know that when we talk about money in an environment like this, it can get a little cringy, it can drive people away, it can turn people off. And I understand all of that. But if ever we were gonna talk about money and resources, this is a great weekend to do it. It's Thanksgiving weekend. We're coming off of a holiday that says, hey, the heart behind this holiday is we thank God for everything that we have. And so this is a very timely top topic, but have you noticed that our culture says, hey, yeah, that's fine, but you don't stop to be thankful for long because there's still more to be had. And pay attention to, like in our culture, Black Friday sales, they are starting to overshadow the heart behind Thanksgiving because it's not just Black Friday. Black Friday happens all year around, right? It's almost like, yeah, there's this holiday in between, but just go and get more. Why? Because that's the way the game is played. Those are the rules. The goal is to make more, to get more, to have more so that we can look and we can feel like we're winning at life. 
But here's the truth, and you all know this, our desire, our pursuit for more, it's coming with a, a huge price. It's, it's causing major problems. Not only does our pursuit of more keep us from being happy and thankful and content, our pursuit of more is tempting us to live outside of our means. It's coming with more stress, more anxiety, no matter how much we make, save, or acquire. And Jesus warned his followers of this kind of living. In the, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gave this warning. He says, don't store up treasures here on earth. You store up your treasures in heaven because wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. In other words, this is what I think Jesus is saying. Pay attention and make sure you live according to God's economy in heaven because it's eternal. Don't live according to the economy here on earth because it is temporary and it is fleeting. Because here's the reality, we're not playing a game. This is real life. And our hearts are so easily distracted by all these temporary things. They distract us away from things that, that will exist into eternity. And I want to be clear on this. Money isn't evil. Money's not bad. Having money, making money, saving money, spending money, all that's okay. Money's okay. We just got to make sure that money doesn't take hold of us. And last week, we made a really important distinction between viewing our money and our possessions as a resource or an idol. We said this, a resource is a supply or a service that can be used and distributed whenever it's needed. It can be drawn upon, but an idol, that's anything that you put in the place of God. And so Jesus wants us to be very careful to view our resources as a way that aligns our heart with God instead of having them be an idol that distracts us away from the things of God. But let's be honest. When we talk about living generously towards God and giving of our finances to God and others, it can be a little scary, right? Because what really, I don't know about you, but it feels like we're giving control, we're releasing control of the thing that makes us feel like we have control in the first place. And so since we've been looking at the last two weeks of different ways that we can give, becoming a first-time giver and becoming a consistent giver today, I wanted to back up and ask maybe a more important question. Where did this idea of giving to God, where did it come from? Where did it originate? There's lots of examples throughout scripture, but where do we see this take place first? The first time we see someone offer, make an offering to God is in Genesis chapter four. There's two brothers, there's Cain and there's Abel. They have two different jobs. One's a shepherd, one's a farmer. They both bring their offerings to God. God accepts and receives one of them, but he rejects the other. And so I think we should back up and say, well, why? Why did it happen like that? On the very first time that we, we see an offering made. So here's the story, Genesis chapter four, verse two. This is what we read. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked on favor with Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain brings some produce, some vegetables from his crops. Abel brings the uh, portions of the firstborn of his flock. Now, if you were judging on appearances, which of these gifts would look more appealing? A basket of fruit or a plate of bloody animal parts? Think about it. We give away fruit baskets this time of the year. Has anybody ever given you, like, here's a box of bloody animal parts. Happy holidays, right? If you're looking at it from appearances, you're like, ah, oh, that's kind of gross. But apparently God isn't worried about the way things look. He's worried about what's going on in our heart. And so here's what we see. Here's why God accepts Abel's offering. Cain gave some 
of what he had to God, while Abel gave his best to God first. He gave from the firstborn of his crops. Now, this is a pattern that we see developed throughout Genesis. In Genesis chapter eight, when Noah gets off of the ark after the worldwide flood, the first thing he does is to build an altar and to make an offering to God. It's the first thing he does. So very early in the Old Testament, we see a pattern develop, but here's what I want you to see God's people displaying for us. They didn't give to God because it was a rule they had to follow. It wasn't like there was a rule manual and God said, here's how you do it. Just follow these steps. They didn't give to God that way. Instead, they gave to God as a response of worship. They realized that God was the provider and the sustainer of life. And so they just gave to him first as a way to honor him. Now, this is a pattern that continues in Genesis 14 with when Abram meets a man named Melchizedek. Okay, now this Melchizedek guy, he's a little mysterious. Here's what we learn about him in Genesis 14, 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. So Abram is returning from a war, from a battle, and he meets this man named Melchizedek. And here's what we learn about him. He's a king of Salem. Scholars believe that this is a shortened version of the city of Jerusalem. His name means king of righteousness, but he wasn't just a king. He was also a priest of God Most High. He was a king and a priest. And I want you to pay attention to what happens. But before we look at what happens, here's what I want you to know. A lot of scholars believe when you put all those details about Melchizedek together, many believe that this is a manifestation of Jesus before he became human. He is appearing before Abram. So this is not a normal king that we're talking about. And look at their interaction. Verse 19, Melchizedek blessed Abram saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth and praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. So he blesses Abram and look at Abram's response. Abram gave him a 10th of everything, of everything that he had, he gave them to Melchizedek. Now, somehow, Abram recognized that Melchizedek was God's representative. And in response to the blessing that Melchizedek gave to Abram, he responded by giving him a tenth of everything that he had. Now, that word tenth can also be translated as a tithe. The word tithe literally just means one-tenth. And throughout the Old Testament, what we'll see is that God commands the people of Israel to give a tenth of their resources to him as an act of worship and to build up the, the ministry locally. But here's what's really cool about Abram's story. Abram lived several hundred years before God would ever command anyone to give him a tithe. So here's what we see from Abram's life. Abram gave a tenth to God because he was compelled to not because he was commanded to. Again, it's not like he was reading a set of instructions like, now what do I do next? He just gave a tenth. To, he's like, I'm responding to God in this way. You see the difference, right? He chose to, no one made him do it. And this is the first example in scripture of someone giving a tithe like this. Now, several hundred years later, God would command the people of Israel to tithe to him, their money, their resources, their crops. It was a way for them to worship and honor God. It was a way for them to take care of the community and honor God that way. But eventually, after several hundred years, the people of Israel began to neglect this command that God had given them to tithe to him. And so God sent a prophet Malachi to confront them. And here's what we read in Malachi chapter three, beginning in verse seven. God is speaking. He says, ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and you've not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? 
Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me, God says. But you ask, how are we robbing you? God says, in tithes and offerings. And you're under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Now, needless to say, God approaches this issue very seriously. He calls them out for turning away from him. He's, essentially, what he's saying is, you have turned your hearts away from me. You are worshiping other things. He accuses them of robbing him specifically by not breathing, bringing the tithes in. And, and what was the result? God says, the result is that your greed towards me has resulted in a curse against you that you brought on yourself. Now, really, nothing about this sounds good or promising for the people of Israel, but I want you to pay attention to God's response back to them because he says, I want you to return to me. Now, this is a pattern we see all throughout scripture. That word return uh, biblically means repentance, repent. If, if we know we're walking away from God, we repent, we return back to him. God's saying, turn back to me. So he gives them a choice. He's saying, look, you can obey me and you can experience my blessings and my provision, or you can disobey me. You can do things your way and the consequences will be a curse that you're going to bring on yourself. The choice is yours. Now, remember what Jesus told his followers in Matthew chapter 6. He says, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Jesus says, this is a heart issue for all of us. And God is confronting the Israelites in their heart towards him. He's saying, turn back to me. Don't hold on to your possessions. Trust in me first. And then God is going to offer them a promise that they could enjoy. Look at Malachi 3.10. God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will, be not, that there will not be enough room to store it. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God gave the Israelites over 600 different commands that they were to obey. I think the number is 613. But this is the only command where God says, I'm giving you permission to test me in this. Test me. Try this one, obey this one, and see if I will not bless you in return. Here's what God wanted them to understand. The practice of tithing wasn't intended to be a rule to obey reluctantly or resentfully. It was a promise that God wanted his people to trust in joyfully. Trust me, test me in this. Now, it's at this point that a lot of well-meaning Christians, followers of Jesus will say, hey, all that's great but that's all Old Testament law. So we don't really need to worry about tithing because Jesus has come to fulfill the law. We're not under that law. And I, I could not agree with you more because in the Old Testament, the people were responsible for paying for their own sins. They, they did a sacrificial service where they would come and bring an animal to pay for the penalty of their sins. They carried that burden. But when Jesus came, when Jesus arrived, when Jesus died, he laid down his perfect life as a once and for all sacrifice for sins. Have you noticed that we don't sacrifice animals around here? It's because we don't have to. The price has been paid for us through Jesus' life. He's the reason that we sing songs. He's the reason that we gather. He's the reason that we give. So shouldn't that motivate us to respond to God with great generosity by giving our best to him first? That's what Abel did. That's what Noah did. That's what Abram did. Abram just raised the bar and put a percentage behind it before God ever commanded it. But here's what I've found to be true among, and I'm just gonna to speak to Christians, followers of Jesus, okay? People tend to squirm 
when we talk about tithing. It makes us uncomfortable. But I got to be honest with you, I don't think it's a theological issue. I think it's because we struggle to trust God with our finances, at least a percentage that high. Maybe we give a little bit here, a little bit there, but being that intentional with it, that's kind of going crazy, right? But when we do that, when we approach it that way, we're just ignoring all the patterns that are laid down for us in scripture in the Old and the New Testament. And the sad truth is we would rather do things our way, just like the Israelites, than trusting in God. And when that happens, we choose to live outside of God's plan instead of inside of his promises and his provision. Now, so far we've looked at Old Testament examples, but I wanna turn the corner and I wanna look at some New Testament examples. And there are many. We're gonna look at just two from Paul's writings to the church in Corinth. So if you have a Bible and you wanna turn to 2 Corinthians 9, we're gonna hang out there for just a minute. But let me remind you about this church in Corinth. When we studied through the book of Acts a few weeks ago, this is a church that Paul himself helped start So he's writing back to his friends that live in Corinth. And here's what you need to know about the Apostle Paul. He was an Israelite. Before he started following Jesus, he was an Israelite and he was a member of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, I don't know, they were like the rule keepers, okay? They they kept all the rules and they made sure everybody else was keeping the rules. And Paul prided himself as a Pharisee as being an extreme rule follower. So Paul would have known the history of Abel and Noah and Abram, and Melchizedek, and Malachi. And he would have known them as good as, or maybe better than all of his peers, which means that he would have been maniacal about practicing tithing and giving to God. But from what we can tell from Paul's life, he didn't give as an act of worship. He gave as an act of righteousness. He was trying to earn or prove his righteousness to God. But then he met Jesus and everything changed for Paul. He realized that his life as a Pharisee, he wasn't living right. When he put his trust in Jesus, he realized my faith in Jesus saves me and rescues me. So you know what? He didn't just tithe back to God. He gave his whole life to God. We've been reading about it most of this year in the book of Acts. He gave his whole life as an act of worship and gratitude back to God. And so I I tell you all of that. So when we read his writings here in just a moment, that's his heart behind it. Now at the very end of 1 Corinthians 16, this is what he wrote to the church. He says, on the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, collections, uh, no collections will have to be made. So he says, each one of you. This is a nice way of saying, if you're following Jesus and you're a part of the church in Corinth, I'm talking to you specifically. And then he said, set aside, be intentional in what you're gonna give to God and give in accordance with your income. God is saying, Paul is saying, look, don't be stingy. Give back to God in the same measure that he has given to you as an act of worship because of what his son Jesus has done for us. He expected every believer, every follower of Jesus to give to build up the local church. And the underlying thing that we've been talking about for the last few weeks is that we give out of a heart of gratitude and worship for what Jesus has done and to fund the ministry of the local church. Now that's 1 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul wrote this. Remember, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And here's this phrase again, each of you, he's talking to anyone that considers themselves to be a follower of Jesus. Each of you should give what you have decided in your hearts to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He reminds them when when it comes to living generously towards God, you will reap what you will sow 
And remember, God loves when you do this cheerfully. It's almost like it's a callback to Malachi 3 to say, there's a blessing in this. Why not be blessed by God? And then he continues into verse 8. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Paul says we live generously towards God so that he will provide for our needs and then we will abound in whatever work he's gonna call us to do for the glory of his name. Now don't miss this. Paul is confirming that God desires to bless our obedience to him and our faith in him when we practice our generosity towards him. So I wanna take a moment and I wanna make this like intensely personal for all of us. I'm gonna put a question up here on the screen and I just want you to silently ask yourself this question in light of everything that we see revealed to us in scripture, in light of what Jesus has done for us and what God promises to do. Do I trust that God will bless me abundantly and provide for all my needs if I practice giving my best to him first? That's, that is a, an answer that is between you and God. And if we truly believe that God is our provider, the source of all of our resources, then why wouldn't we respond back to him in that same measure of generosity as an act of worship? So here's the question. When it comes to living generously, how can we live with less fear and practice more trust towards God? Now, every, every week in this series, I've been sharing a little bit of, of Casey and I, our story and our giving journey. And I've said, you know, we've been married for 22 years. And when we were first married, we didn't make much money and we had a lot of debt. But we were part of an amazing church family that taught not just on the value of giving, but they taught specifically, our pastor taught specifically annually on the importance of tithing to the local church as a way to build up uh, the, the church to, to advance God's name in the local community. And so we just very early on began practicing giving a tenth of our income to God. And we've never looked back. God has provided for us in some pretty amazing ways. We don't have everything that we want, but we've always had everything that we need. And since moving to Genesis a few years ago, God has called us to begin stretching that every year. In spite of having four kids who are getting ready to go to college, and we've just learned to be faithful to him, whatever he's calling us to do. So that's part of our journey. We're still growing in this area but here's why I share that with you. I share that as a matter of accountability because I'm not gonna stand up here and tell you what God says without telling you, this is how I view this and this is what we're doing. And we're always being grown and stretched in this area. And so I'm just inviting you to join our family on this journey to see what God can do. Over the last few weeks, uh, we've been asking for people to share their stories, your giving story. When did you give for the first time? What motivated you? What has God done through your, this journey of generosity? And I want to share a story with you from a guy who's in my Wednesday morning men's group. He emailed this to me this last week and gave me permission to share with all of you. He said, I was at my lowest point before coming to know Jesus. I was recently divorced and living with someone trying to fake life. We built a big house and we were buying all the things that I quote unquote knew would make me happy, like a sports car and a Harley. All my neighbors had these things, and so I thought by building my perfect Hamilton County life that I would have everything I thought an adult would need to be content, but it didn't work. I was so empty inside and craving something more. During this time, I came to faith in Jesus and was invited by Genesis to Genesis by a friend who helped me in this walk. I ended the relationship that I was in, and I realized that I didn't have enough money to make ends meet, so I sold all the toys that I bought that I thought would make me happy, they didn't, 
but money was still tight. I learned about tithing and I began to trust God with this area of my life that I had not surrendered to him yet. And even though things didn't add up at the end of the month, I gave and God began taking care of me in surprising ways. It was freeing to realize contentment could be found in God and not all the other things that I had been pursuing. I was always wanting more and none of it was ever enough. But now through faith in Jesus, I have an eternal perspective on things. My life looks very different now. And giving my resources back to God is a simple act of faith that my family makes each month, remembering that God gave to all of us first. Now, that's just one story of one person, one family in our church family. And I know many of you have stories like that. We'd love to hear them because it's a, it's a credit to what God can do in all of our lives. But here's a question. How can we all learn to grow in this area of generosity just like that together? What would it look like? What could happen? Now, each week we've been using an illustration called the generosity ladder. We've used this for the last few years. It's a really simple tool just for us to figure out, hey, where am I in this journey and how can I take a next step? And I wanna be real clear here. You're not climbing a ladder to get closer to God. You could very easily set this thing on its side. It's just, think of it as a pathway of generosity. And we've talked about the value of becoming a first-time giver, taking a step of faith and giving to God for the very first time becoming consistent in your giving. But today, I want to focus on giving intentionally. That's what we've seen Abel and Noah and Abram model. That's what Paul was writing to the church in Corinth about, is being intentional in the way that we give. And so today, the challenge is for all of us to grow in this area by being intentional in our giving. Now, if you were to ask me, okay, well, well, where do I start? Where's the best place to begin? I've got a two-part answer. The first is you need to pray about it. Because if we believe that God is the provider of all that we have, if he is the source of all of our resources, then you should say, hey, God, what do you want me to do with what you have given me? And do whatever he says. But I I can tell you from my own personal story, we just started at 10% because it's a pattern that we saw laid out in scripture. And it's a great place. It's just a place. It's a good place to start. It's a good target to shoot for as you begin. But you need to do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. For some of us, giving 10% might not be that big of a stretch. Maybe you've been doing this for a while and he wants to grow you there. Ask the Holy Spirit what he wants you to do and respond in obedience. For some of us, the thought of giving 10% seems impossible. I get it. I've been there. So maybe you pray and you set a goal of 5% or 7% or you just, you're going incru- incru- to grow in this over the course of time. You do whatever God invites you to do, but look at scripture and look at the way that we see God respond and bless his people when we release our finances to him. Now, it would be easy for any of you, especially those of you that are new or visiting, to say, all I hear this guy saying is give our church your money. And I want to be real clear. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying this is what scripture says on this. This is what the apostle Paul challenged the church in Corinth to do. And if you are a follower of Jesus, the question isn't, why should I give to the church? The question really is, which local church am I going to give to? It's the pattern that we see laid out in the New Testament because God is using the church for his glory in some pretty amazing ways. And by the way, when you give to the church, you're actually giving through the church. Because of our collective giving, we're able to support um, 13, 14 ministry partners and three church plants all over the world, okay? 
Like that's just what our, what's some of the stuff that's happening through outreach here. So if you consider Genesis to be your church home, I wanna challenge you to give to Genesis Church to partner with us in this. But if you don't trust our mission of helping people find their way back to God, and you look around and you say, I just don't trust the way you guys are using this money. That's fine. I, I trust, I, okay. You should give to a local church that you do trust, that you can get behind. And so what I'm not saying is if you don't give, you're not welcome here. That's not what I'm saying. You are welcome here. But as a follower of Jesus, you should be giving to build up the ministry of a local church. And I want you to imagine what could happen if we all begin living this way. We're able to do some pretty amazing things around here because of our collective generosity. But if we all begin to tithe and beyond, there's no telling what God would want to do. This Tuesday, just one small example is Giving Tuesday, okay? And on Giving Tuesday, a lot of times nonprofit organizations say, give to us, here's the things that we want to fund. But on Giving Tuesday, we've kind of turned that upside down and said, we want to give back to our local community. This is the third year we've done this. We're going to adopt four schools, two in Carmel and two in Noblesville. We're providing handwritten notes. Every person in that school is going to get a handwritten card from someone at Genesis and a gift card inside that just says, Merry Christmas. Thanks for partnering with us and serving our community. The total price tag on that is somewhere in the neighborhood of $45,000. We provide them with breakfast and the gift card. And this is why we do it. We want to model generosity. We want to catch people off guard with that kind of generosity. So that's what's happening on Tuesday. But I want you to imagine what could happen if we started pursuing things like that all the time, if we all began living generously together. When you came in, you should have received or you should have had a card like this sitting on your seat. Next week, we're going to ask everyone to, to make a commitment to your personal giving journey. You're going to get to keep a part of this. We're going to get to keep a part of this. I want to invite you to pray through this this week. This top part is yours. On the back, there's some definitions of the different kind of givers. This top part is all for you. So you could write down what your current amount is, what God's calling you to give in a, in a percentage or an amount, the method you're, that you're going to give. And the start date, I think, is really important. It's your way of committing and saying, I'm actually going to do this. I'm going to start on this day at this time. This top part's for you. We're going to ask everybody to turn in this bottom part. And students, if you have money, if you make money, this is a great practice to start now. You'll notice the name part's optional. We're not asking to know your name. We're not asking you to tell us what you're going to give. But we're saying, hey, are you going to be serious about your journey of generosity with God? So you can check a box. You can fill out the start date. And then as a church family, it'll just help us to know where we're at on this journey of generosity. But as we end today, I want to create some space for us to pray, for you to pray where you are and say, God, will you, will you help me to be real about where I am and where you want me to go? So I'm going to give you a moment. You can bow your head. You can close your eyes. You can keep your eyes open. Just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you today and throughout the rest of this week. And I want you to imagine what God could do if we all move together. So take a moment and pray. Ask him what he wants to do, and I'll wrap us up.
Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. Um, this isn't a mystery in your word. It's, you very clearly have revealed this to us. You've shown us patterns of different people and different ways they've responded to you. And I just, I want us to be a church that is responding to you in faith. And so I, I pray that if I've said anything that doesn't line up with your word, um, that you would bring the truth in and replace it. But would you help us to be a generous church united around the name of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit? Would you break our hearts free from greed, from fear? Would you help us to experience gratitude and joy in living generously for you? And would you remind us we do this because of what you've done for us? We pray that as we give on Giving Tuesday, that it would spark conversations that maybe people would be curious about Genesis Church, but more specifically, people would be curious about followers of Jesus that would be that, that generous. Would you do more in our church family than we could ask or imagine for your glory? Would you help us to free our hold on our resources? Help us to get out of the way and follow wherever you're leading as individuals, as families, and as a church family. And Jesus, as we close and we sing to you, we lift our hearts to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.